Good morning, Los Angeles, and welcome to another edition of the Weekend Warrior Show. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Clapper. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at Cedar sinai for 31 years. I'm so excited for today's show. My guest is calling in from Berkeley, California. It's Dr. Nate Johnson. Nate is an expert on the wildlife that lives amongst us. Believe it or not, I read an article he wrote in the L.A. Times sports section. That's how this all came about, about exactly what the birds in your backyard are singing. What are they saying to each other? Spring has arrived. Is it that birds are so excited that spring is here and they're flirting with each other? No. Actually, according to Dr. Johnson, they're actually tweeting to each other, get out of here, this is my backyard. All these territorial tweeting. What else can we learn about the nature and wildlife that surrounds us? Well, he's an expert in it. And since we're all locked up at home in quarantine, this is a perfect thing to try to figure out. He's a perfect guest. And it made me think all week about learning and living with wildlife. You know I love the world of sports, the world of art, and the world of surgery. Where do we learn from wildlife in all the three of these areas? Well, in music and in art. In 1961, a group called The Token sang a song called The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Singing, the lead, is Jay Siegel in his high falsetto voice, and he made this a number one hit. Rebecca, let's listen to that song. Listen. Uh. Now I'm going to teach you about this song, and it's going to blow your mind. Because it ties into exactly what we're going to talk about today. This song was not written by some guy in Brooklyn in 1961. No, that's when he sang it. But this song was written because of wildlife. It was written a hundred years ago by an African Zulu named Solomon Linda. Solomon wrote this song actually in his native language, in Zulu about a lion who was following him while he was shepherding his cattle. The whole idea of singing at a high pitch above the low level of a roar, inspired by this lion. And actually, the song in Zulu is called Mbube, M-B-U-B-E. This story is just going to blow your mind, because the American Pete Seeger, the folk singer, heard this song in 1950s and changed the name to Weemaway because he thought Mabube sound like Weemaway. And it wasn't until Jay Siegel heard Weemaway that they added English lyrics to this song. Wait till you hear this. It's amazing. All inspired by the wilderness. In sports, you need to be able to talk to the wildlife and deal with wildlife. And the greatest talker to wildlife or listener of wildlife in my lifetime was the great jockey, Willie Shoemaker, who I actually got to meet in 1988 while I was with Dr. Curlin as his fellow in the jockey room in Hollywood Park. Willie Shoemaker, the most successful of all the jockeys. I mean, he won 8,833 wins. I think Lafitte Pinkai surpassed him. But for years, he was the man. And they used to say about Willie Shoemaker that he disturbed the horse the least. Two of his four Kentucky Derby wins, um, or I should say Kentucky Derby presence, one where he actually lost the race in 1957, is because of his talking to wildlife 
And in 1986, at age 54, the oldest jockey to ever win a Kentucky Derby, again, his ability to talk to the horse and listen to the horse is what led to this victory. And his career was just pretty much unmatched because of this ability. And we're going to get into that as well. In medicine, I took a walk this week at UCLA in the Botanical Gardens. you got to do this while you are allowed to at least escape from your house every once in a while. And the Botanical Garden at UCLA has next to each tree and plant a plaque telling you what that specific plant or bush is. But then you read the medicinal aspect of that wildlife, that tree. What drug that we use to save our lives comes from it. Amazing. And we'll get into that. But right now, let's hear a little bit about the story behind The Lion Sings Tonight. Let's go to the story behind The Lion Sleep Tonight. We'll go one through three. It all began back in 1909 in what is present-day Swaziland, when a man by the name of Solomon Linda was born. Linda grew up in the Masinga, in rural Zululand, as a typical kid of the time. He herded cattle, and although he couldn't read or write, he had a connection to music, and was strongly influenced by the new syncopated music that had swept across South Africa. In his 20s, he moved to Johannesburg, where he led an a cappella band that entertained local beer halls. It was in 1939 when a talent scout at Gallows Records invited Linda's group, the original Evening Birds, to record an album. Here is where they would come to produce their most famous hit, Mbube, which is Zulu for Lion. The song was inspired by an experience Linda had herding cattle, which a lion wouldn't leave his presence. The lyrics were so simple, but its call and response chants and harmonies were so mesmerizing that the song came to define a whole generation of Zulu a cappella singing, a style that became known simply as Mbube. Many music scholars say that the hit song was the first African record to sell 100,000 copies. And although record sales flourished, it wasn't until 1951 that it was released to the masses in the film Cry the Beloved Country. Mm. Now let's listen to the sad truth behind this song that written by Solomon Linda, an African Zulu, about ins- inspiration from a lion following him in his herd. Let's go to one through three. The story begins in Johannesburg, South Africa, 1938. A group of Zulu singers called Solomon Linda and the Evening Birds step into the first recording studio ever set up in sub-Saharan Africa. And they record a song called Mube, which in Zulu stands for the lion. And it sounded like this. However, a copy of the record managed to make its way to New York City in the early 1950s, where it was found in a pile by legendary folklorist Alan Lomack. Without actually hearing any of the records in the box from Africa, Lomack thought his friend Pete Seeger, a famous folk singer at the time, would be interested in them. And so Pete Singer and the Weavers sang this song and became a hit record in 1951. 
But now let's go to the Jay Siegel story. He's a 15-year-old kid growing up in Brooklyn who decides to sing this song on the street corner. Weemaway, which is the wrong name of Mabu Bay, and how this becomes the lion sleeps tonight. Listen to this. Let's go one through five. Okay, when I was about 15 years old, I lived in, uh, in Brooklyn, New York, in a, in a little town called Brighton Beach. And in the summertime, that's what we used to do. We used to hang out on the beach. And uh, every few blocks was a different singing group. And every time uh, we used to sing this song, it used to draw a big crowd. Everybody used to hear this, and they used to run over to listen to, uh, to us sing the song. And also, that's how we used to get the girls, because the girls used to come over, and that's how we used to meet girls, by singing on the beach. And little did I know, that little song that we used to sing for fun on the beach would become a number one record all over the world, and it was the biggest hit in the history of rock and roll. And it went a little bit like this. It went... And that became The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Oh. I was in the chorus in my high school, and uh, this kid was sitting next to me. His name was Neil Sedaka, and he started this rock and roll group. And uh, we made a few records, and we did a couple of TV shows back when I was only about 16 years old. And after a while, we broke up, and Sedaka went on his own, and we reformed the tokens again. And that started our career off. Tonight, I fell in love, our first big hit record. Very complicated lyrics. <laughs> Anybody can relate to those kind of lyrics. You know, I fell in love, I want the stars above to know it tonight, I fell in love. You know? But uh, those were the songs back then. That was a, uh, you know, that was a big hit, but, you know, that was a one hit. Who knew, who knew what was going to happen after that record? We didn't want to be a one-hit wonder, as they call them, you know? And our contract was almost going to be over, and we went up to our producers, and they asked us, what else do we have? And I started to sing Wim Away, and they said, well, that's, that's very unusual. We recorded the song. It was a very strange record for the time, which I still think it is for this time. It's still very unique. And the other guys in the group didn't want that record to come out. They thought it was too weird. It's never going to happen. Uh, but, the, you know, I said, I think it has a shot. And, and I think it, would, it could be a commercial success. We were at a meeting at RCA Victor, and the president of RCA Victor called us up to his office. He said, I'm, gonna send, I'm, I'm sending you guys to Rome to do a show in Rome. So we all thought we're going to Rome, New York. You know, Rome, Italy? We did a big, big TV show, and the uh, <laughs> biggest variety show all over Europe. It was called Studio One. Mm, this is just a story about what I always tell you. You want to have a happy life? Find the gift that God gave you and share it with the world. That's all Jay Siegel ever wanted to do, was sing in that falsetto voice. He didn't have a nine-to-five job. He got paid to use that gift that God gave him that he discovered in himself. And each of us have a gift. You just need to find it. This whole idea that this song started in Zulu a hundred years beforehand, just an amazing story of what you can learn from the wilderness. When I go surfing and that seal pops his head up or that dolphin comes within five feet of me as I'm paddling, what are they saying? I think about it all the time. You can walk outside in your backyard or open up the window 
and listen to spring that's arriving. Listen to those birds. Look at the flowers changing. Just like Solomon Linda listened to the sounds of nature as he herded his cattle and the lion was following them. The wildlife is all around us, but the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. And at 8.15, my guest is an expert in what exactly is going on around us in the world of wildlife. I cannot wait to talk to Nate Johnson. Coming up next, we'll do some clap revision. I'll take your calls. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. What about in the world of sports, where the inspiration comes from the wildlife? There was nobody better than the jockey, Willie Shoemaker. There's two examples where his intimacy with learning how horses communicate at the Kentucky Derby, both winning at age 54 because he could communicate with this horse, Ferdinand, and beat the odds and won the race, the oldest jockey to ever win the Kentucky Derby, but also in losing. In May of 1957, he miscalculated, not the horse, but he miscalculated the finish line, stood up because he thought it was over, and the horse did what he said, even though he knew the other horses were right next to him, outrunning him. Let's go to the Bill Shoemaker story. Let's do soundbite number five. His father was a cotton farmer in Texas, and he was born in a town called Fabens on August 19, 1931. When the doctor delivered him, he weighed two and a half pounds. The doctor just left him on the bed and said, he'll die before the night's over. But his grandma put him in a shoebox, turned the cook stove on, left the oven door cracked open to let air in, and the doctor was wrong. She incubated him through the night, and he didn't die. They named the two and a half pounds William Lee. And then he moved to California. At 14, he got a job at a ranch. And from the first day, he knew that's where he belonged, among horses. Up at five, watering the training track, mucking out the stalls, rubbing down the stock, $75 a month with room and board. Shoemaker had been a tiny kid, to be sure. And like a lot of small boys, he had to prove he was tough. With his size, the advice was inevitable. Son, you ought to be a jockey. By 1949, he was just that, a jockey. And he was tough. He had ridden against the best riders, and he had ridden the best horses. So let's go to two of his races that both involved the Kentucky Derby. Here's a, here's a race, May of 1957, and you're going to hear Bill Shoemaker actually speaking, which is going to be great. And here he lost the race because he could communicate with the horse like nobody else. But it was the jockey, Bill Shoemaker, that miscalculated the finish line, and stood up. He thought the race was over, and he lost the race. Let's go to one through four. But it was this derby day in May of 1986 that would live with the shoe forever. At the age of 54, Shoemaker teamed up with a 17-to-1 long shot named Ferdinand. And for Shoemaker, he found himself riding against jockeys young enough to be his sons. At the start of the race, Shoe and Ferdinand were down on the rail, pinched back. Hitting into the first turn, they found themselves dead last. But as the horses entered the famed Churchill Down stretch, Shoe saw a hole and boldly moved Ferdinand down to the inside, where they found racing room. Together, they catapulted through on the rail and ran down the leaders. And here comes Ferdinand on the rail. In the final, how long is Ferdinand getting the lead? 
Amazingly, Chu's fourth derby win came more than three decades after he had first smelled the sweet scent of the roses. So let's go to Kentucky Derby victories, one through four. May 4th, 1957. And that 83rd Kentucky Derby will long be remembered by jockey Bill Shoemaker and others for the quality of those who ran. Uh, that might have been the best field of any derby ever run uh, because all uh, there's about five horses in there were really, really top horses. And they all proved it the next year because they all won big stake races as four-year-olds uh, all over the country. The race came down to this dramatic stretch drive with Shoemaker on the outside on Gallant Man and Bill Hartack on the inside riding Iron Liege. Deep in the stretch, Gallant Man on the lead, Shoe, thinking he had reached the finish line, raised up. The mistake I made, it happened so fast I wasn't able to get him out before the uh, Kentucky Derby that day. I only had the one mount, that was Gallant Man. And that track is, uh, is a lot different than uh, most tracks. The finish line is like a sixteenth of a mile further t towards the first turn than uh, any track in the country. And that's that's how I made the mistake, misses the finish line. Shoemaker had lost the 1957 Kentucky Derby by a nose. Even worse for Shoe, he believed it was his error that cost Gallant Man the victory and handed jockey Bill Hartack the first of his five derby wins. I think it could, I think it made, was the difference. I think I would have won that race if I could have kept riding him hard, yeah. What helped get Shoemaker through the biggest mistake of his entire racing career was the support of Gallant Man's owner, Ralph Lowe. Well, he was disappointed, and so, so was I, uh, because I made that mistake. Uh, but the stewards told me they thought it was an honest mistake. They weren't going to take any action. And uh, I went to Dallas, Texas to see Mr. Lowe. And about a week later, I got a telegram from them. Uh, the steward saying that because of the uh, importance of the race and uh, all the coverage, uh, television coverage that he got, they were compelled to suspend me 15 days for making that mistake. And he got mad at, Ralph Lowe got mad at the stewards. And he said, well, I'm not going to run my horse in the Preakness. I'll wait the shoemaker gets up and uh, run him in the Belmont. And that's what he did. Didn't he have a gift for you and all that? Oh, he did, sent me a new automobile, a big, beautiful Chrysler, to uh, kind of make me feel a little better because I really felt bad. Mm. And then at age 54 in 1986, the oldest jockey ever to win the Kentucky Derby because he could communicate with that animal, with Ferdinand. Listen to the Bill Shoemaker story number five. There was always a distinctive look to the way Shoe rode a race. It's been said that Bill Shoemaker bothered a horse less than any other jockey. The craft of a jockey is not just skill and intelligence and physical conditioning. It's timing and touch and intuitive reaction. When that timing is missing, so are the winds. The timing, the touch, how to communicate with a horse. What are the birds really saying in your backyard? That lion following that herd of cattle in Swaziland and the Zulu herder who became a singer, Solomon Linda, which became the lion sleeps tonight. There's a whole world out there that I would love to learn more about. In my opinion, 
to take advantage of the quarantine, you can walk outside in your backyard or open up the window and listen to spring that's arriving. Listen to those birds. Look at the flowers changing. Just like Solomon Linda listened to the sounds of nature as he herded his cattle and the lion was following them. Like Willie Shoemaker could have a sixth sense with the horses that he was around. The wildlife is all around us, but the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Coming up next on the Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Clapper Vision, we got to talk about three of the biggest baseball pitchers just had elbow surgery. One in New York, one out here in Los Angeles. And actually not New York, it was done in Florida. By two good friends of mine, Neil Elitrosh here in Los Angeles and David Olchek who I trained with at the Hospital for Special Surgery, who operated on Noah, Noah Syndergaard for the Mets. They all had the surgery Dr. Frank Job designed in 1974 on his pitcher, Tommy John of the Dodgers. But what exactly is Tommy John's surgery? And where did Dr. Job, who's one of the sweetest, nicest men I've ever been around, if we can find my interview with Vin Scully, the only reason Vin Scully stopped and talked to me on the red carpet, and I interviewed him, was because I spent so much time with Dr. Job, and that was his buddy. It was my connection to Vin Scully was through Dr. Job. But how did Dr. Job come up with the idea of being able to do something no one had ever done before, which was to fix a ligament in the elbow, and did this crazy experiment at the time on Tommy John? Well, Dr. Job, operating in the 50s and 60s, where one of the biggest problems we had in orthopedics was dealing with patients who had polio, just like we have this pandemic right now, the coronavirus. Yeah, there was a time my parents used to tell me about it when there was another pandemic, and it was polio. Only the the worst thing about polio was it went after children. And really the sad thing about polio is you not only got it as a kid, but you got what's known as post-polio syndrome which was, as an adult, you almost got another beating of polio. Terrible. Crippling disease. Well, there was a terrific hand surgeon who Dr. Job was good friends with, and the two worked really close together. Dr. Job loving to do shoulder and elbow and, naturally, hand surgery. And the way the hand surgeons could help a kid with polio or an adult where the tendon just no longer fired because the nerve was out. It's like you pulled the plug out of the wall so the light bulb went out. So you could still flex your fingers in your hand, but you couldn't extend your fingers. You could flex your wrist, but you couldn't extend your wrist. So the genius hand surgeons came up with a way of borrowing the muscle and tendon that still had its electricity that did work to flex your wrist, and they would do an operation where they would cut the tendon's attachment to the bone of the tendon that still worked, even though it was flexing your wrist, and weave it through the back of your wrist with surgery and reattach it to the back of the wrist so that when the muscle fired, it extended your wrist. This whole idea of cutting a tendon and reattaching it to a different spot on the bone is what is what Dr. Job learned. And he learned to do this from his hand surgeon, hand surgery experience and his hand surgery friends. So when faced with a baseball pitcher who had stretched out and tore the ligament in his elbow 
throwing that curveball, particularly as a young kid, and then as you come through the minor leagues and the big leagues, right now in Major League Baseball, one in every four pitchers, 25% of Major League pitchers have had, some of them have had the surgery. So what is the surgery that Noah Syndergaard had in Florida by David Alchek and Chris Sale, the Boston Red Sox, had out here in Los Angeles? It literally is taking a tendon from your forearm and using it as a rope, drilling holes into the bone, the humerus bone, the arm bone, and the forearm bone, the ulna. Remember, there's two bones in the forearm, the radius and the ulna. You drill holes in those two bones that cross the elbow joint, the humerus bone and the forearm bone. You literally drill a hole. This is why I'm a carpenter's son, and I love it. And you take the tendon you took out of the forearm, which the body can easily spare, and you use it as a graft, and you weave it through these holes and anchor it back into the bone. But here's what here's the clapper vision I want you to appreciate. Clapper vision. You don't just drill a hole. And you don't just weave the new tendon, the graft, to make up for the torn ligament. But we purposely make it like, here's the clapper vision, your shoelaces. When you want your foot to stay solidly in your shoe, we don't just have a horizontal band of shoelaces, although people make that, or Velcro strips. But if you really want to tighten your foot and keep it inside your sneaker, notice how your shoelaces cross. It makes like a figure eight, like an X. Well, that's exactly the genius behind Dr. Job creating the Tommy John surgery. He recognized that to keep that elbow stable when that baseball pitcher Tommy John was going to throw with no ligament anymore, and this is what Sandy Koufax suffered when they, quote, unquote, used to say you blew out your elbow. But in the 1960s, we didn't have a Tommy John operation, so your career was over. Dr. Job changed the world in baseball by coming up with this idea, using shoelaces as an inspiration, using hand surgery as a guide, taking advantage of the tragedy of polio and the surgeries we did to help people with polio. He created the greatest operation that baseball has ever seen. And all these years later, 2020 versus 1974, are you kidding me? 46 years later, we're still doing the Tommy John surgery. Awesome. Just awesome. Clap revision, shoelaces, X, figure eight. It's a beautiful thing. Coming up next, I'm going to tell you, you hear me talk all every Saturday, all the time, about how much I hate cortisone. Well, guess what? I've now discovered two articles that will show you even more why having a cortisone shot in your shoulder, particularly if you've got a rotator cuff problem, is not something I want you ever to do. And I'll explain why. Coming up next, the number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. You know, there's nothing greater in life for me than a bagel. And we can talk about where to get the best bagels in L.A. My own personal favorite is Western bagel. But it's what you put on the bagel. And for me, there's a magic to the cream cheese. Yeah, you can buy all kinds of cream cheese in the store. And you can buy the cream cheese maybe at the bagel place. 
but there's a science to cream cheese. I don't know exactly what's in it. I'm the kind of guy, I'm not really a big fan of just eating cheese, like hard cheese, a chunk of Swiss cheese or cheddar cheese. For whatever reason, I love it when you melt the cheese on pizza, on cheeseburgers, then I can't get enough of the cheese when it becomes soft because it's melted. Well, cream cheese is soft without it being melted. So I have always loved putting cream cheese on my bagel. But since I'm such a connoisseur of cream cheese and what to put on the bagel, my mouth is watering already. You gotta ask yourself, where is the best cream cheese, the creamiest, the tastiest, the best to put on a fresh, warm bagel or one that you toast? And I'm gonna tell you where you can get in Los Angeles the best cream cheese. It's not cheap. I think it's like $8 for a little pint. But that bagel of yours will taste like the greatest bagel you ever had because of the cream cheese. My favorite place to get a bagel, and you can still get it, they're open, is Western Bagel. But in their refrigerator, when you buy that dozen bagels, you'll turn and you'll see their homemade cream cheese. And there is something special about Western Bagel's homemade cream cheese. I don't care what they charge, I would pay twice as much. Because when you put that on that bagel, it becomes a whole different animal. It's creamy, it's rich, it's almost like melted cheese, except it's right out of the refrigerator. Mm. Ain't no sunshine when she's cheese gone. It's not warm when she's away. That's the great Bill Withers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. The number is 877-710-ESPN. We're listening to Bill Withers. May he rest in peace. He just passed away. Really just a genius singer-songwriter who lived life on his own terms. You've got to respect that. Well... I know your world is turned upside down and so is mine, but you know what? I still continue to see patients. I am so busy. My doors are still open. If you need a weekend warrior checkup or something's the matter, you can still come and see me. It will be virtual, which will be kind of cool, although they say I have a face for radio, but you'll actually be able to see me, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Yeah, Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, I've been seeing patients. And it's kind of like being on the radio, looking at the studies, being able to talk to the weekend warriors. I love it. Seeing like 30 patients a day. It's really great. I guess, you know, my nature is people. So I went into the right field, I guess. But I want to give a shout out to my hospital, Cedar sinai who've really done an unbelievable job in this coronavirus. And a particular shout out to the people running the hospital. Yes, the doctors and the nurses, particularly on the front lines, it's just been unbelievable. I've never been more proud of Cedars. But the leadership from Tom Prislak at the top to Brian Croft, these people are the unsung heroes behind the scenes, allowing people like me to still be a doctor and be able to take care of patients. So it's it's nice to, to mention their names because you should know that behind the scenes is leadership 
the hospital needs them to provide a place for us to do what we need to do. So you hear me talk every week about how much I love being holistic. Yeah, I'm a busy surgeon, but there's a time and place for surgery. You do it when all else has failed. I hate the pills. I hate the shots. I hate all the the idea of getting rid of the symptoms. The symptoms are there to point out there's a problem, whether it's pain, swelling, limited motion. But you don't want to just take a pill or a shot to make the symptom go away. You need to get to the root of the problem. So you hear me go on and on. Don't let them stick a needle into you, especially don't let them stick cortisone. So I am what's known as board certified. You know what that means? It means I got to take a test to prove that I'm staying up to date. And you want to make sure that whatever doctor you're going to, that they are board certified. But it's a big deal. And you have to stay current. So in staying current, some of the articles that I've come across, two of them in particular, I just love these articles. They're in the major journals. They're done in academic institutions, one at USC and one in Chicago at Rush. Listen to the title of the article from University of Chicago, Rush. This is the title of the paper I just finished reading. It says, the timing of injections prior to arthroscopic rotator cuff repair impacts the risk of surgical site infections. The conclusion of this article is injections of cortisone within one month of arthroscopic rotator cuff repair significantly increases the risk of surgical site infection. Okay, there you go. It's not just the Weekend Warriors show and Dr. Clapper talking to you about the risk of infection when you let someone put a cortisone shot in your shoulder, but there it is spelled out for you. I just loved it. Beautiful science behind it. And here's an article from USC. My good friend Tom Vangsness, Seth Gamrat. I mean, these are brilliant researchers. Here's the title of this talk. Injections prior to rotator cuff repair are associated with increased rotator cuff revision rates. Conclusion of this study. I loved it. This study strongly suggests a correlation between preoperative shoulder cortisone injections and revision rotator cuff repairs. More frequent injections and with the administration of the injection closer to the time of the surgery, both independently associated with higher revision rotator cuff repair rates. They showed in these studies that if you actually have a partial tear of your rotator cuff and you now have a cortisone shot, you bump up the rate that the partial tear becomes a complete tear because of how the cortisone affects the collagen. So people ask me all the time on the radio as well, Dr. Clapper, why do you have this tirade against cortisone? What do you have against cortisone? There's the science. It affects the good tissues, the good structures. So is it ever indicated? Yeah. To get through an event, I will give someone a shot. But to do it as routine treatment, no. It actually has these side effects that you all should be aware of. So you're allowed to put up your hand and say, nope, I don't want that shot. How come you don't want that shot? Because I listen to Dr. Clapper every Saturday morning on the Weekend Warriors show, and he says no. You're okay to do that. That's part of why I'm doing this show, is to educate you, to teach you. The number is 877-710-ESPN. 
I'm doing the show from home because we're all under lockdown and quarantine. So it's a little fastoodled because I can't necessarily hear everything like I'm in the studio. But it sure makes a difference to be able to still do the show.